This evening's scripture reading will come from Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. You may be seated. Once again, we are back in the book of Revelation. And this is a challenge, to say the least. As we look at the book of Revelation, I feel the need to remind you, here is my disclaimer. I may be wrong. Uh, when I look at Revelation, I simply first look at it as uh, what was the message? What was the message to those first and second century Christians? What is John trying to say to those Christians? And then second, how can we apply that message to our lives today? Let me remind you also that uh, with the uh, lessons from Revelation, I am providing you some supplemental material that is in the bulletin. Uh, it was in last week's bulletin, first part, and in today's bulletin, the second part of that information on Revelation chapter 7. Uh, let's do a quick review. Where have we been so far? In chapter 4, we were introduced. We were introduced to the great throne room of God Himself. Glorious throne room. Him in majesty, in glory, on that throne. Then in chapter 5, chapter 5, we met the Lamb. And we all cried out, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In chapter 6, we talked about judgment and how that judgment is coming. And we were introduced to the four horsemen, and we were introduced also to six of the seven seals. Now, in chapter 6, we also uh, gave you the concept of catalyst. Because this judgment, yes, is a judgment on those who would not believe and who would not obey God's holy word, but also it's a catalyst. It's a catalyst to cause us to want to take the message to our friends and family. You see, our friends and family, if they're not Christians, they have zero hope. And because they have that zero hope, chapter 6 should motivate us, should be a catalyst to get us to take the message to them. But what about chapter 7? Well, it's coming. Before we go to chapter 7, let me remind you, as we've said every lesson so far, the early Christians needed to hear this message. And so do we. This is a picture of a very unique monastery. 
This is a monastery on top of a 3,000 foot cliff. What's the only way to get to the top? The only way you can get to the top is to actually step inside of a basket and two guys on the ground will then pull a rope and you will then go up to the top. An American was invited to go and visit this monastery. He arrived at the ground level. The two guys got him inside the basket and he started going up. And you would think going up, you know, you would probably want to look around and see the beautiful scenery and, and take in the, the beauty of God's created nature. But no, this American couldn't do that. Because this American started noticing that rope as it went by. And he noticed how old it was. And how frayed it was. And there was actually strands of it that were broken. And he started thinking, that doesn't look like a very good rope. When he finally got to the top and he got out of the basket, he asked the guy at the top, he said, hey, I've got a question for you, if you don't mind. Tell me, how often, how often do you change the rope? And the guy said, well, that's an easy question. We change the rope each and every time it breaks. That's not very comforting, is it? But folks, I tell that story for a reason. I think that's the way some people view their journey to heaven, especially when times are tough. They, they feel like they're on a, a swaying basket being pulled to heaven by an old and fraying rope, just hoping it doesn't break anytime soon. They've lost. They've lost any sense of security. So they grit their teeth and just hang on for dear life, afraid to take any risk for Jesus. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you're afraid to take any risks. Maybe you don't want to take the risk of, of sharing your faith of letting people know where you stand for the Lord. If that's the case, tonight's lesson is for you. Because you're going to be encouraged by the story of the early Christians. Because the early Christians will face persecution like no believers has ever known it before. They will pay a price, a very dear price, to profess the name of Jesus, and many will lose their lives for their faith. They'll be under tremendous pressure to just give up their faith and, and deny their Savior. And yet, they will do just the opposite. They will be bold witnesses for the Lord. Remember that word, catalyst? The book of Revelation encouraged them to get out and do even more for the Lord. They will take unimaginable risk to spread the Lord's name around the world. They will go all out, refusing to be paralyzed by fear. Friends, that's victory. 
That's victory, pure and simple. I call chapter 7 the chapter of victory. Victory. The question is, uh, where? Where will they find the security to do that? Where will they find the courage to to stand up for Christ? Remember the last verse of chapter 6? Who shall be able to stand? And where will they find the confidence to go all out for Him even during the great persecution? Where do they find that victory? Revelation chapter 7 tells us not only where they found their security, but where we can find it as well. Verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding, holding back the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. What's going on right here? Remember the question of Revelation 6, 17, who shall be able to stand? We find the answer here in chapter 7. This is the victory. God is in control. God sends four of His angels to hold back the winds of judgment and destruction for a time. Why? Because He's in control. Rome might think they're in control, but they're not in control. It's God. Verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. That reminds us that God is in control. God is in control. The early Christians, they needed to hear that and so do we. God wants to mark out His own. He wants His children to know Now, by the way, he already knows. But he wants his children to know that he knows who belongs to him. This is for the Christians. This is not for God. God already knows. But he wants his children to know that he knows who belongs to him before he judges the rest of the world. This is comforting symbolism. Look at verse 4. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, God seals 144,000. 144,000 represents completeness. Go back to my bulletin article of last week. I I explained that. Twelve, the number twelve, that's religious. That's the twelve tribes. That's the twelve apostles. That's a religious number. Anytime you take a number and multiply it by itself, twelve times twelve is 144, that's completeness. And then you multiply it by 
a thousand, that's maximum ultra completeness. What is this? This is what I call the church militant on earth. These are the Christians on earth who are standing up for God. These are the Christians who are boldly taking their faith and demonstrating it on a daily basis. This is the church militant. God knows who they are. God is aware. God is aware of who they are. He symbolically puts His seal of ownership on them. And He secures each faithful Christian for safe delivery into heaven. God will put His mark of ownership on them. He will mark them as His property, as His possession. In the first century, when a, a dignitary would send a document to someone, he would seal that document up, and then he would drip wax onto the seam of that document. And then he would take his signet ring, signifying his authority and his power, and he would then put that signet ring down in that hot wax leaving an imprint of that signet on that document. That seal, that wax seal, indicated ownership from that dignitary. God, symbolically, is sealing His children on earth. Other words, He knows who belongs to Him. He knows who belongs to to Him. I once had an opportunity to talk to a, a shepherd over in, the, in Israel. And he was talking about the sheep that they had there and, and talking about all the different people who, who had sheep in that uh, in that. Uh, I would call it a corral. He called it something else, but I'd call it a big corral. And I said, do you know who your sheep are? He said, oh, yeah. I can identify each and every one of my sheep. And all the other shepherds can identify each and every one of their sheep. God knows who belongs to Him. That's ownership. Well, that's what God does for this great number that's represented by the number 144,000. Now, that number 144,000 comes up again. Over in chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. What is this? This is the church triumphant. These are the Christians who have died and now gone to heaven. But did you notice the same number? 144,000 on earth, representing the completeness of God's kingdom on earth, and 144,000 in heaven, representing once again that everyone on earth who had been faithful had made it to heaven. 
Notice that number. That's victory. Not one lost. All were in heaven. The early Christians needed to hear that. And so do we. Not a single one of them is missing. They're all standing with Jesus in heaven. None of them lost their salvation. Not one faithful soul was lost. Not even during the great persecution coming upon the early church. Think about it. If God can preserve all His people during the great persecution that warred against the early church, don't you think that He can preserve all His people today? He sure can. And He will. Because Ephesians 1 tells us that God seals every believer. This is an early seal. Notice Ephesians chapter 1. In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed. That's the first seal that we receive. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. You see, when we became a Christian, God's Holy Spirit came to be part of our lives. Please, if you're not a Christian tonight, I urge you to put your trust in Christ and find your security in Him. Find the courage to run the race that He has set before you. Find the confidence to live for Him. Gain the victory. Gain the victory. As you all know, Billy and I are baseball guys, okay? We're baseball guys. Moneyball is the true story of Billy Bean. The general manager, he's still the general manager of the Oakland A's. Now, the Oakland A's is a small market team. They don't have a lot of money to spend. Usually, they're right near the bottom of the budgets for all 30 Major League Baseball teams. Moneyball is all about Billy Bean hiring a guy named Peter Brand. Now, Peter Brand was not a baseball guy. He was actually a graduate of Yale University. He was a graduate in mathematics and stats. He invented the concept of looking at baseball decisions not based on scouting, but based on mathematical odds. What's the best mathematical odds for the outcome? And guess what? In, in many cases, it, it works. In 2002, the Oakland A's were at the top. They were winning ball games. They set the uh, record that season for the longest winning streak. A lot of people were predicting that they would go all the way to the World Series. They got put out in the first round of the playoffs. Billy Bean, who's played by Brad Pitt, is in his office kind of moaning and groaning what has happened. You know, I thought we were going to win it all, and, and we've already lost. Peter Brand walks into his office, and sensing what's happened, he says, you need to come to my office. Come down to my office. 
So they go down to Peter Brand's office and, and Peter's been watching a video from one of their uh, lower minor league teams. You know, all their rookie players down in the minor leagues. And there's one particular player, a catcher named Jeremy Brown. And Jeremy Brown's got a lot of baseball talent, but he's got a, a, a phobia, okay? Every time he hits the ball, even when the ball looks to be a double or maybe a triple, he just can't go past first base. I mean, when he, when he gets up to first base and he should be going to second, he just freezes and stops. He just can't get in his mind to leave first base and go to second base or third base for a triple. Peter told Billy, say, Billy, just watch this. And Jeremy Brown hits the ball. He hits it to, to dead center. He takes off for first base. And for the first time, he rounds first base, and it looks like he's going to go for second. And he just stops. And literally, he crawls back to first base. And he's hugging first base. And the video shows his teammates just laughing. And Billy Bean says, yeah, they're laughing at him. Peter said, uh-uh. Look, and the camera looked at the ball. The ball that he hit had went over center field fence. He had hit a home run. He got up and then went around the bases and scored the home run. I tell that reason, that story for a reason. Here it is. My dear friends, Jesus has already hit the home run. He's already hit the home run that brings us home. We don't have to cling to first base. He has already done it. Romans chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but what? According to the Spirit. We don't have to live in fear anymore. We don't have to keep on crawling back and, and clinging to first base. Instead, we can confidently move forward, crossing all the bases as we make our way toward home. When you know that you're going to heaven, by the way, you should know that already. There's nothing that can stop you. So tell me, do you know that you're going to heaven? Are you confident? Well, let me assure you, you can know it today. You can be sure of your eternal destiny. You can be certain right now that you will make it to heaven when you die. All you have to do is trust and obey Jesus Christ and live faithful to Him. My point is, you can know all of that. You can know if you have obeyed Jesus, and you can know if you're living faithful to Him. 1 John 5. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may what? Hope. That you may guess that you may uh, wring your hands and, and, and maybe think, maybe by the skin of my teeth. No, that you may know that you have eternal life. 
and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Do you know? My friends, you can know. You know if you're living faithful or not. You know if you're doing what you know. You sh- it's not a matter of not knowing. It's a matter of not doing. It's a matter of not doing. Put your faith in Christ and know that you have eternal life. Find your security in Him. That's what Revelation 7 is all about. And more than that, put your faith in Christ and found Find your salvation in Him as well. Find the joy of victory in the very presence of God Himself. The early Christians needed to hear that. And so do we. Put your faith in Christ and be a winner. Be a champion as the early Christians would be. Gain the victory. Verse 9. After these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude. Hey, we're bigger than 144,000. And now we've got a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white, circle white, robes, with palm branches, circled palm branches in their hands, and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the Lamb and the elders. What's going on here? God will save a great multitude, people from every nation, tribe and language, who put their trust in Christ as their Savior, obey and live faithful. They will be winners. They will be victors in the fight against the forces of evil. The early Christians, they needed to hear that. With all that was going to go in their world, they needed to hear that, and so do we. When Rome's armies came home from the battle victorious. The soldiers would wear white robes. Notice the white robes. And the people would wave palm branches. Notice the palm branches that we just read. Just as we see the saints doing here in verse 9. On earth, on earth the Christians were defeated. Or so it seemed. But they are true victors. Go back to chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. The the martyrs are crying out, when will justice be given to us? Look at verse 11. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. Heaven is a place where we get to worship God up front and close and personal, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. All of heaven praises God for the victory. These martyred saints, chapter 6, verse 9 and 10, these martyred saints had won on earth. 
On earth they were cursed, but in heaven they become a cause for celebration. So it is with every faithful believer in Jesus Christ. When it seems like we have lost on earth, in heaven we are counted as victors in the cause of Christ. Remember Stephen, the stoning of Stephen? I've mentioned this so many times. That's the only time we see Jesus standing. But why is he standing? All other pictures of Jesus, he's always seated. But here with the stoning of Stephen, he's pictured standing. Come on, Stephen, just a few more moments. Get ready, angels. Victory! Victory! Welcome home, brother. Welcome home. You are a victor. Victory in Christ. My dear friends, we cannot lose. Even if mistreated, even if made fun of and abused, they cannot stop us. And when we're cursed on earth, we become a cause for celebration in heaven itself. So put your faith in Christ and be washed. Be cleansed from the guilt and shame of sin. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? That's a rhetorical question. He knows. And I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The early Christians needed to hear that. They needed to hear that their troubles, their problems, their difficulties, they would be rewarded, rewarded in heaven. That's not only true of those who live faithful for Jesus during the days of the early church, that's also true of every believer today as well. 1 John 1, if we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses. That's past, present, and future. Cleanses us from all sins. If we walk in the light, if we walk faithful to Him. Jesus shed His blood on the cross for us. He died in our place so we wouldn't have to. He took the punishment for our sins so we could live with Him forever. That picture of what Christ did for us. He is the Lamb of God who shed His blood for us. He died so that we could be clothed with His own righteousness. Now God accepts us as His own and we are forever His. The early Christians needed to hear that, and so do we. Verse 15, Therefore they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. See, all the problems of life are over. For the Lamb who's in the midst of the throne will be shepherd them, will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of water. And God will wipe away every tear. Can you imagine that? 
A lamb being a shepherd. But this is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Think about it. If Jesus will lose none of his sheep during the ter terrible days of the great persecution, the great tribulation, then certainly he will lose none of us who trust and obey him today. Like those early believers, everyone, everyone who is faithful to Jesus will be celebrating in heaven forever. You know if you're faithful or not. You know. You know, you can sometimes try to justify it. You can say, well, you know, you can, you can rationalize it. You can do that. But you know. You know if you're faithful or not. John chapter 6. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. That's referring to those apostles but should raise it up at the last day. The promise is for you. Put your trust in, in Christ and find your security in Him. More than that, find a sure and certain salvation in Him as well. Know today that you're going to heaven when you die. Then you can live. You can live every day for Him. A little boy lost his mom when he was just five years old. His dad decided to take him on a picnic the next day after, you know, they had had the funeral and it had been a few weeks. And after a few more weeks, uh, he decided to take his little boy on a picnic. His little boy had never been on a picnic. And he packed everything the night before. And he's told his son, now son, now go to bed because it's going to be a big day tomorrow. You're going to need a lot of sleep. So he turned the lights off and he went to his bed. But in a few moments, that little boy was back. And he's there at his dad's bedside and he's saying, Dad, I just can't sleep. I'm too excited, you know. Hey, we're going to a picnic and, and, and we're going to feed the ducks. And, and the dad said, you've got to go to bed. You've you got to get some sleep. You, you can't go to the picnic if you're all tired. So once again, he got up and took the little boy back to his bedroom and put him in bed and went to sleep. Well, at least the dad went to sleep. A few more minutes, he's awakened by his son. And he's about to uh, uh, scold him. And he notices that his son is just smiling big time. And the dad says, what's, what's going on, son? The little boy said, Dad, I just want to thank you for tomorrow. When we think about what our Heavenly Father has planned for us, we can't help but say, Father, I just want to thank you for tomorrow, for heaven. Thank Him today, not only by the words you say, but by the way you live your life. As I've already mentioned, you know if you're living faithful to Him. Have you become a Christian? Believe, repent, confess, and be baptized? 
Do you have a need to ask for His forgiveness? 1 John 1, 9. Can the church agree with you? James 5, 16. If you have any need to respond, will you please do that as we stand and sing for your encouragement? Why did the Savior heavenly and come to Yeah. 